Hello, welcome to the Theology Pugcast. We're glad to have you with us again. Uh, we consider you folks out there in Pugcast land good friends, and uh, we're good friends. We've uh, known each other for a while. In fact, we even knew each other and were, uh, were friends before we started the Pugcast. I don't know how often that's the case with, you know, podcasts. Maybe, maybe that's the way it always is. But, but anyway, we're glad to have you with us. We're glad to count you as friends. And in case you're wondering why I'm talking about friendship so much, you'll learn in a minute. <laughs> but anyway, uh, why don't we introduce ourselves? I'm C.R. Wiley, the senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester in Manchester, Connecticut. And I'm working on a book right now on Tom Bombadil, who proved to be a very friendly fellow to the hobbits when they had, well, gotten into a lot of trouble in the old forest. But anyway, that's another story, another subject for another time. Tom, why don't you tell us about yourself? Tom Price. I'm a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist, teaching both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And I'm Glenn, Glenn, Glenn Sunshine, professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Well, we're going to be talking about friendship today, but I got a couple of things I need to take care of and, to, and get out of the way. First of all, uh, we, uh, with our Indiegogo campaign that, we're, that we're, we're using to raise money for a new website and some new equipment, it's moving along pretty well. We have about $1,500 uh, at this moment pledged, and uh, we've got a ways to go, but that uh, is a great start. So we appreciate all the folks who have uh, you know, labored to or, or, or responded to the appeal. Thank you very much. And there'll be a link in the show notes if you'd like to find that, uh, that website, the Indiegogo website for the podcast. And if you'd like to, like to pledge, you could get some great merch. We've got you know, a glass. We've got a shirt. You can get a shirt and a glass. You know how this thing works. Anyway, there's that. The other thing we wanted to remind you about is in October, uh, the, I think it's the 1st through the 3rd, our friends at the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network are, are having a conference, and we're going to be there. And our, our, our man, Glenn Sunshine, Dr. Sunshine, is actually one of the speakers. And uh, we'll have a booth, and it's going to be a great time. And so we want you to put that on your calendar. Go to the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network website. There's a way for you to, I think, sign up and say you're coming. And anyway, that's that. So let's jump into the, to the topic of the day want to look at friendship. I want to look at friendship particularly uh, through the lens of the writings of Aristotle and C.S. Lewis. Uh, we'll get into some other things I know because we did a little, you know, we had a little conversation before the, before the camera and the microphone started recording. So uh, we're going to get into some other stuff. But uh, the theme of friendship is something that's always interested me uh, from the standpoint of uh, Aristotle's take on it. Um, you know, I was always a kid had, you know, lots of friends, you know, there's some people that just, I don't know, uh, maybe they have a little difficulty making friends as a kid. I, I never had that, 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 uh, problem. Um, I was the kind of kid that everybody had a nickname for, 
You know, I don't know if you guys were like that or if maybe you were the guys that gave other people nicknames. <laughs> With the last name like Sunshine, are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know where some of my nicknames, what my, some of my nicknames were with the last name like Wiley. <laughs> I, I anyway. was priceless, so I, I consider that actually a compliment because I think most of the people using the term thought it was derogatory. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had them. <laughs> Joke was on them. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, one of the things that's uh, intriguing about Aristotle's take, of course, is he, in, the, in the ethics, he is addressing friendship as a virtue. Now, I think that when we think about virtues we tend to think about virtues kind of as uh things that uh uh you know are in a whole different kind of league um they're not things that necessarily relate to friendship we might like our friendships our friends to be virtuous maybe not too virtuous if you know what i mean <laughs> but often when we think about the virtues we think about them through sort of the lens that uh we have been given uh, through you know our own Christian faith and and the and the idea is that these things are goods that are you know things that uh, reflect God's character in us and when we develop them we are godly so virtue virtues and godliness for often for many Christian people are just synonymous they're they're, they're the same thing just with a different moniker but. For Aristotle, Aristotle thought of the virtues in the classical way, which makes sense, <laughs> but uh, he, he thought of them as things that reflected uh, not just well on a person, but actually served a community, and consequently, uh, all sorts of things got thrown into his treatment of the virtues. Some, you know, for example, wittiness. You know, he, he, he found that, that uh, witty people... I had a way of gr sort of oiling the machinery in, in a social environment, and they were good to have around. Now, you could be too witty and, you know, just be clownish, uh, but a, a person who lacked any sense of humor is also a problem. <laughs> so, you know, the Spartans actually used to work on developing that in their warriors because it helped when you were going into battle to have people like that to... Loosen people up, I guess. Would be the yeah, thing. yeah. Well, you remember the opening scene to Gladiator. Now, you know, what you had there with Maximus, you know, going among his men, preparing them for battle, um, is he makes the joke. You know, if you find yourself walking through, you know, this lovely field, you're dead. <laughs> you're in Elysium. You're no longer with us. <laughs> well, you know, when you think about the classic stories of the Spartans at Thermopylae, you know, surrender or we'll blot out the sky with your arrows. Great, then we'll fight in the shade. <laughs> sure, sure. Great, but you the know. ability to laugh at you know, and, death, and right. those kinds of comebacks and things like that, that was considered a virtue right. in, in almost every sense of the word among the Spartans. So it's not surprising Aristotle picked up on that. Yeah, and of course, virtus, as we know, uh, is manliness. And it's manly to be able to laugh at danger and so forth. All this stuff kind of comes together. But the subject of, friend, of friendship itself is something I, that uh, Aristotle develops really well. And uh, I think there's a lot to it that's worth reflecting on. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read uh, from Nick McKean Ethics. I've got here uh, 
Bartlett's and Collins' translation of the Ethics. Nicomachus, by the way, was Aristotle's son. So Nicomachean Ethics was basically almost like you'd think of the Book of Proverbs, kind of a training manual for of a father, you know, uh, working with his son on the good life. So um, it's book eight, if you, if you are interested in, in following along at home. It's book eight, and I'm just going to read, uh, you know, the first few paragraphs from the first chapter, then we'll jump to chapters two and three quickly, and that'll be it. I think it'll give us so much material to work with, we won't have to worry about filling up the time. But uh, here's how he introduces the subject. It would follow after these matters to go through what concerns friendship. For friendship is a certain virtue or is accompanied by virtue. And further, it is most necessary with a view to life. Without friends, no one would choose to live, even if he possessed all other goods. And indeed, those who are wealthy or have acquired political offices and power seem to be in need of friends most of all. What benefit would there be in such prosperity if one were deprived of the opportunity to perform a good deed, which arises and is most praiseworthy in relation to friends especially? Or how could one's prosperity be guarded and preserved without friends? For the more prosperity one has, the more precarious it is. In poverty as well as in other misfortune, uh, people suppose that friends are their only refuge. And friendship is a help to the young in saving them from error, just as it is also to the old with view to the care they require and their diminished capacity for action stemming from their weaknesses. It is a help also to those in their prime in performing noble actions, for two going together are better able both to think and to act. So a very, uh, I think, uh, rich introduction to the subject. Now, what Aristotle uh, is really helpful with is in his categorization of forms of friendship. He identifies three different kinds. So I'd like to get into his uh, discussion of that. He says uh, first uh, that, uh, well, with regard to what makes a person likely to be befriended or to become a friend of another person. He, he, <clears throat> pardon me. He notes that <clears throat> the, the person needs that we want to have as a friend needs to be lovable. So there's, there's something about the person that draws us to that person. And what is it that draws us to them? He says, um, he says, uh, not everything seems to be loved, but only what is lovable. And this seems to be what is good, pleasant, or useful. And there you have the three categories, the good, the pleasant, and the useful. So let me just elaborate on these three, the, these three things, because I've talked about these things many times. I don't need to read Aristotle's treatment, although it's great. Um, but a useful friend is a friend who's obviously of use. <laughs> <laughs> he's a person that you you rely on um in you know because of uh, the help that he can be to you uh at you know in the course of your life and likewise because friendship is mutual you in some sense are useful to someone else 
So like when you, when you have a neighbor who has a lawnmower and you've got a weed whacker, you're useful to each other. You know, you, you can borrow his lawnmower, you can borrow your weed whacker, you can both take care of your lawns. But it's precisely the usefulness that makes this kind of friendship very uh, uh, fungible. You can, you know, get other people to replace, you know, people who were useful to you at one time. Furthermore, um, you may no longer find a use you might, uh, for, for someone. You know, you, you might buy your own lawnmower. <laughs> you know? so, so friendships of this kind uh, are temporary. And, and what's intriguing about Aristotle's approach here is that when you think about friendship in this way, it's so capacious that people that are business associates or even merchants can be your friend in, in this sense. You're useful to the, to the merchant because you have money. The merchant is useful to you because the merchant possesses something you want to pay for. So this is, even though it's kind of mercenary in a sense, or, uh, it's still friendship in Aristotle's mind. And this is, I think, a, a good thing to, to include in friendship because what I think it does is it helps us to see that there are many things that we, um, we take for granted in, in the course of our lives and you know, our civic lives in terms of how we relate to the authorities who govern us, to uh, you know, economic matters, especially with regard to the market we don't normally think about as, as forms of friendship. But I think Aristotle's right. They really are. But then he goes on to describe a different kind of friendship, and that's the pleasant friend. Go, go ahead. Before, before you go there, it's interesting, you know, contra Luther's criticism of Aristotle as the Antichrist. <laughs> um, what, what, what you notice here is what we would typically think of now as a utilitarian relationship, you know, that, that this person has a particular, uh, uh, this, this person is useful to a particular kind of purposes that I, ha I have need of and, and maybe they have need of. And so we'd all, almost see it as almost using someone. Um, Aristotle, it, it, it isn't left at pure instrument you know, the relationship is not purely instrumental. He, he almost uh, makes the creatureliness at the heart of that kind of, of relationship. So, so there is friendship there. It is, it is a ground for a certain kind of friendship. It's not ultimate friendship. It's not the ultimate flourishing and happiness. But it is not something that is merely this person is an instrument to me getting my lawn done. There is actually a, some kind of bond there. So I didn't want to skip over that because that's something that makes it very different than the kind of instrumental kinds of friendships um, that oftentimes in modernity as, as isolated individuals, you, you only have someone in, involved in certain realms of your life as you can use them to gratify yourself. This is very well, different than that. Yeah, and that's a great point. And I think the reason why we, we think that way is the very point you made about isolated modern people. Yeah. Aristotle is talking about communities. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we have to we have to add a social dimension to this as well, in that slaves are useful, but Aristotle would never talk about a real friendship with a slave. Right. Yeah. And and we'll get into that a little later, probably in the in, in sort of the challenge of inequity in a, in a relationship that is a friendship. But anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but but a, the second category is a, is the pleasant friend. We all know this sort of friend. This is the guy who is, is, is really funny, who uh, is just, you know, great to be around. Um, but it, it, he's probably not tremendously reliable. Uh, or or if, if he is, that's sort of like something that's a whole other kind of thing. In other words, this is the friend that you had back in college. The, par- the party guy. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Or it may be the friend that you have that just is your ski buddy or your golf partner or whatever, and it's great to be with them for that thing. Uh, but you would never ask them for a favor. <laughs> it would never occur to you, and you probably know you wouldn't get it anyway. Because <laughs> it's, it's, it's all about pleasure. You know, uh, and, and, and Aristotle says this is also a very fragile form of friendship. And he notes that this is, this is the kind of friendship that young people are most inclined yeah. to, to give themselves over to. And, and, and so he says this is a form of friendship that comes and goes I mean, even more quickly than yeah. the utilitarian friendship, the, your, yeah. the friendship based on utility or use. Yeah. So, uh, but at the same time, I mean, it's, it's worthwhile. It's not like... Uh, you don't need that kind of thing in your life. It's great to have people that you enjoy being around that bring a smile to your face when you see them walk in the room, you know, and hopefully you do the same for them. They, they, they find you pleasant or useful, maybe, maybe as an audience, maybe that's your use. <laughs> you serve as their mirror, you know, their social mirror, how, how wonderful they are. But anyway, there's that kind of friendship. Then there's the third friendship, which is the friendship that's based on the good. Now, that's a huge category, the good. What do we mean by the good? Well, um, what, what Aristotle gets at is that this friendship, which is maybe what we would call in our day true friendship, the kind of friendship that is enduring and goes through good times and bad times and and it, it persists even when you're not very useful, you know, and you can't really do much for each other. Uh, but it's, it's there because there's some goodness that's being exercised in the friendship, but there's also some good that, you know, each party sees in the other in the friendship. And so there's a sense in which you know, the thing that binds the people together. And that's the thing with Aristotle. He's, he's, wanting to, he's wanting to understand what holds this stuff together. The thing that binds these two people together is the good or goodness, either as it resides in each person and is exercised or because they see something in each other or because they see something above them both that is the good. Yeah, it's that, it's that transcendental dimension even even if aristotle's transcendental perspective wouldn't be where we'd go um it it is this notion that it isn't utilitarian um it it is not seeking happiness from the friendship this this kind of friendship it is one that actually finds the friendship in the good (laughs) 
and, and, and the good is what brings and, and makes that binding. And I, I mean, I think C.S. Lewis did have something of this. We'll get to that later. But I mean, he often said it's, it's when, when you sit down at the table for the first time and encounter someone and you mention something and somebody says, ah, that's the point. And then they sit down next to you. You, you aren't trying to find your happiness in the person. You both see something that 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 uh, about the transcendental that brings about that bond and so that creates almost what you would call a spiritual friendship at that point something that isn't transigent in the same way that pleasure you know or um you know or, or utility is it's something that has this endurability because that which is good or that which holds it together is is common through everything mm-hmm. yeah yeah now there are a lot of ways we can we can kind of move with this. Um, there are you know a range of possibilities when it comes to friendship, and and you bring up Lewis. I've got a copy of the Four Loves here, and I refreshed my memory a little bit. Uh, just kind of worked my way through the chapter on friendship very quickly. In case folks aren't aware, you know he, he talks about. Uh, different forms of love in this, in this uh, book. And uh, he talks about uh, affection, friendship, eros, and charity. And um, I actually uh, heard a recording of Lewis talking about the four loves, but, but he approached it from the Greek uh, in the radio address. He talked about storgi, uh, philia, eros, and agape. And um, so you know, the, the Greeks had words for all these things. <laughs> anyway, um, but uh, I think that this whole matter of, of friendship, particularly spiritual friendship, as it relates to particularly this highest form of friendship, has got some, um, I think, complexity or some, some things about it that I think would be good to kind of unpack a bit and i know tom you you did a little brushing up on your aquinas yeah Um, yeah (laughs) when we talk about spiritual friendship it's almost as though when we talk about this highest form of friendship it's almost by its nature spiritual but i think that christians have kind of gone on and done more with it um yeah well well, what what aquinas does and and you know contra most of the kind of Protestant allergy to Aquinas. Um, He doesn't merely baptize Aristotle. What he does is he finds this profound discussion um, having having a lot of insight based on our creaturely natures um, that is very congruent with Christianity, but has no way of finding out how it is. And so what he wants to do is, and one of the questions he wants to ask is very similar, is, is what is it that allows friendship um, in the Christian sense of the word to hold the people together, to, to be a common bond, fellowship, covenant, community? And, and, and he thinks the questions that Aristotle raises are very, very important because they help us draw from the scripture and revelation um, just exactly what it is. And so for, for him, one of the questions that comes up front, it comes from Aristotle, is how do you have unequals in friendship? Now, Aristotle does this for like slave, master, 
um, husband, wife. I mean, you have, you have all these different kinds of, you know, this is dealing with a time where, you know, it wasn't equal, egalitarian in, in our modern sense. Um, but, but Aquinas is asking it in a deeper sense, how in the world can a human being have friendship with God? Yeah. You're right. dealing with, you're, you're dealing with an inequality that, that is, is an unbridgeable inequality in the sense of uncreated being and created being. And so th this kind of, this kind of um, problem became a theological problem at this point. And, and there's, it, it, and, and there's a, a scriptural basis for this. I mean, Abraham was called God's friend. That's right. Know, Moses was called God's friend. And Jesus. Walking with God in the cool of the day. That's it. That, that's it. That's the kind of intimacy that, that yeah. are, the, even at the start, we, we have this kind of friendship with God. That's right. And so, and there's a whole, yeah, you just mentioned a lot of the great texts, friends, friends with God in, in Jesus. No longer do I call you slaves, but friends. Right. Um, and so Aquinas is really poking around in this theological dimension. How do we make sense of this? And, and one of the things he really comes to is that, you know, you have to have a shared life in order for there to be any kind of friendship. Now, He's moving towards friendship with other creatures, but he understands as Christians that there is none of that unless we have the vertical. <laughs> and, you know, the horizontal has to be centered in the vertical. And so if you can't have friendship with God and your love's ordered the right way, then it, it almost makes the, the other kinds that, that Aristotle was up to impossible. But you have those things ordered the right way. A lot of the insights that Aristotle had made make sense, yet they need, a, they need fuller elaboration and some, some pruning. And that's what he does. And really, Summa Theologia, uh, the second volume, 2-2, addresses these questions. Um, but one of the things Aquinas knows is Old Testament really talks about the heightened distance, that which almost doesn't make friendship very possible. Of course, covenant comes into it, temper, tabernacle, the presence of God with a people again. Um, and, and, but one of the things that the terms that is used to describe the whole picture of friendship is caritas, which it grows out of agape, of course. Um, but we often think, Aquinas will say, is that caritas is simply loving God first, you know, as for, for and, and, and there is something true in that, loving God for God's own sake, because he's the most worthy object of all things. But Aquinas says that even the, the pagan can, in a weird way, do, because it could lead to a selfish kind of love. So even though you say you love God for God's own sake, you love God for God's own sake, because what, it's you and God, right? The individualism. It's, it's I walk in the garden alone kind of stuff. So Aquinas says this profound thing. He says, what is it that in loving God for God's own sake means that I actually can turn to my fellow creatures, not only my brothers and sisters in Christ, but even my enemies, and actually have friendship, make friendship, love, and reconciliation possible? And this is where he's very profound, is when, as Christians, we turn to God, that the God who is in himself this most worthy object is a God who is a God who shares that life. And God doesn't share it merely with, it's not, God's not enclosed in himself, but is actually outgoing. So the whole creation is that which God shares his inner life with. 
And so automatic, that creates the common ground for both our natural bonds with each other. Then also, of course, there's going to be in the incarnation and redemption, you know, uh, the, the heavenly, the saintly kingdom friendship. But one of the things you get there is, is that all creatures, this is Thomas's work, all creatures in some sense, because they, in their own distinct way, as creatures have been given life by the love of God, the being of God, the will of God, all creatures in their own way reflect certain perfections of God. So there isn't a part of creation in its unfallenness that you can't in some sense have a certain love for. But you don't love it in the way you love God. You love it in the way that it reflects God. And that that's really... So each thing is created in such a way that it reflects God in its own distinct kind of way. And so what happens with others? Well, we love those things in a distinct kind of way. We have a friendship with them in a distinct kind of way. And of course, human beings made in the image of God and, and then having the capacity as rational souls, in a sense, or you know, rational creatures to, to will and to enact and to think about these things, have friendship and loves in a distinct way. But the common connection is that as we love God for God's own sake, because God is such a God that God is a sharing God, who creates a common good by that sharing, we therefore can turn to the rest of creation lovingly. <laughs> and therefore friendship has a, a, its root and ground in God. And even our natural loves. For example, he, he uses thing, a stone can actually, as it functions as what it was created to be, actually loves God in its own distinct way. And so we can, as we relate to what it was created to be, and we help to, it to flourish to be what it is, we actually are friendship with creation in very profound ways. So anyway, his, 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 his system is very rich in reflecting, reflecting on all of this. But koinonia, um, this notion of community is, is very much at the heart that, that God has, has created a city, and this city is such that it can have a relationship because it has a common share in God's grace to it. There are a whole range of things to think <laughs> about in this. <laughs> I, do you have something you wanted to say, Glenn? It kinda, you kind of been like leaning forward and looking like you might. Well, I, I've been. Uh, I, I want to go right back to where you started. <laughs> issue of um, of distance, of, of love between and equals, and one one of the ways that I've heard um, the the three usually when people talk about Greek words for love, most often they'll talk about three of them, not four. They leave out storge, um, which would be uh, eros, philia, and agape. And one of the ways that I've heard that them distinguished is that eros is effectively self-centered. You love, it's utilitarian in a sense. You love because of what you get out of it. Philia is mutual. And agape is other-centered. And then that would tie into caritas in Latin. And the thing that's interesting is that, um, again, according to some of the things that I've read, Agape was not particularly considered a virtue in ancient Greece. It's only in Christianity that that kind of disinterested, other-centered love becomes a central virtue. Um, to the Greeks, 
it was the kind of thing that a slave owed his master. You know, a complete, not, not, they're not going to get anything out of it themselves. They're not interested in getting anything out of it themselves. It's, it's completely other-centered and working in the best interests of their master. And it is, in that sense, servile. It is, in that sense, something that is not particularly virtuous to the mm-hmm. mind. Is, is that because it's unimaginable that the higher would um, love disinterestedly the lower? Yes, yes. and that, that's the thing that becomes distinct about Christianity, that you have a God who needs nothing from the universe, gets nothing from the universe, is not benefited by the existence of the universe, yet nonetheless creates the universe and pours out his goodness on it constantly, not because he can get anything back from it, because frankly he can't, but just because he wants to, just because he loves it. And when you have that view of transcendence, when you have that view of, well, as Tom has frequently said in earlier programs, all is gift. When you have that notion of God as giving and just completely giving and getting nothing really in return that he doesn't have to begin with because he's the origin of all things anyway. That's the point at which agape or caritas in Latin can become a virtue because at that point, the person who lives in agape or who lives in caritas is actually becoming godlike. So now there's some really interesting sort of uh, dynamics here in terms of similarity and contrast with certain Greek understandings of the divine. So, you know, er, you know Aristotle would have agreed with you completely, uh, you know, Glenn, that God doesn't need the universe. You know? In fact, right. it, he, he would go even further. He's not even aware. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The, <laughs> un- the unmovable mover, right? And it's sort yeah. of like it has to be that way because if he were conscious of it, there would be some imperfection in his thought. So God, Never. as pure thought, could not even countenance the thought of the world that's dependent upon him. Uh, and even him would be uh, sort of a, a, a failure to recognize the utter otherness of right. the prime and mover. It's an impersonal principle. That's right. Uh, so what Christianity introduces is this, this gracious component, which is this, this God who doesn't need, but is yet uh, the creator and uh, the mover. He's, he's the mover, but he's also the... Uh, uh, you know, one who is willing to consider that which is not perfect, perfect and actually perfect it. I think we lost Tom, but I think he's coming back. <laughs> our, our connection may be weak here. But anyway, I, I didn't mean to cut you off, Glenn. I know you probably have something else you wanted to add. No, that, that, I just wanted to point out that the, the contrast between, you know, the, the Greeks had a lot of really good ideas. I mean, Aristotle... Contrary to Vizzini and the Princess Bride, Aristotle was not a moron. Okay. He, you know, he, he, he was a genuinely brilliant guy and, and analyzed things in, in a way that is, um, you know, is very valuable to us. But if you go to the medievals, one of the things that the medievals discuss kind of regularly is the relationship between 
philosophy and theology. And they actually played around with the notion that sometimes truth, I don't think any of them actually held to it, but that's the idea that something could be true philosophically, that is to say by unaided human reason, but be false theologically because of revelation. And in a lot of ways, what we see, you know, that, that issue, that distinction between philosophy and theology comes out at this point. If you don't know God, and if you don't know the character of God, by any human reason, you can get a lot of really good and true and worthwhile things, but you're not going to get to the ultimate truth. For that, you need revelation because it gives you something that unaided human reason doesn't have access to. And in this case, it's this idea of the transcendence of God, but at the same time, the grace of God. Yeah, there's something surprising in Revelation. And that yeah. surprising thing is, is that God's relationship to the world is unlike any human relationship with any other human being. You know, you, we, we've all uh, run across some really great people in our lives, but even those great people in some sense, needed uh, something in return, uh, you know, from the people that they knew, that they know. Um, there's nobody that is um, capable of living in this godlike way where they just are, you know, in the relationship just because they're so good. <laughs> there's, a, there's something that we all get out of things. And so at a human level, that's that's perfectly understandable but if you were to say okay well that that can't be true of god that that would imply that that you know since god doesn't need anything you know from us really then there'd be no basis for a friendship in the sense that friendships are mutual you know there's mutuality going on but god condescends and is uh interested in elevating his creation, you know, uh, perfecting. Yeah. Well, that, that, I mean, like Aquinas, the language is right out of Peter. It's like partaking of the divine nature, not, not in a sense that, you know, that we tend to think in, in, in with, with a very thin understanding of what they meant by that. But it's that, that very thing is that God invites us into um, a common communal relationship with God, a genuine fellowship um, that requires, in some sense, a like-like analogy that isn't disrupted by sin. And of course, that's what redemption establishes, that's what grace establishes. This is something Aristotle could not get to, <laughs> and, and nor can anyone else. And so uh, it, it's that kind of partaking of um, and, and, you know, another way we think of it tends to be in, in, in sort of sonship or adopted, you know, adoption is being made partakers of Christ. The union with Christ is, is a participation in the son's relation to the father. Um, and and this, this here is the kind of bringing us up into the deepest kind of friendship you can, you can have. Um, there's there's nothing available anywhere. No philosophy, no other religion has this kind of invitation into the very communal inner life of God. Yep, and that, now, you see that especially in John's uh, upper room discourse in his high priestly prayer. That's that's the main theme of that entire thing. That 
that what Jesus does is he invites us into the very life of the Godhead. Yes. Which is extraordinary. I mean, it's, it, it, it's one of the things that is, well, again, uh, at the risk of sounding like Vizzini and the Princess Bride, it's really inconceivable uh, what that <laughs> actually means. Right. Well, and, and the language is, 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 is we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Um, At this point, I'd like to introduce a wrinkle to, to our proceedings. <laughs> and it, it comes in the form of uh, the suspicion of friendship <laughs> that some people in the Christian West have had because friendship is in some sense exclusive which seems to run contrary to the universality of regard or, or good sort of will that we see in agape. So with agape, you know, there's like, I'm in this because, you know, um, it's just good and it's right and so forth, and I'm not getting anything out of it. <laughs> but <laughs> but in, in terms of how friendships actually function, uh you know, there is some good that is received by the giver. So there's, there's a kind of uh, exchange, but also because of finitude. I mean, there's only so many friends you can have. I mean, you know, uh, there's, you know, so many hours in the day. There's only so many places you can be, that kind of stuff. So some, um, some medievals were uncomfortable with friendship for that reason. They, they felt like uh, it was in some sense a... Uh, uh, betrayal of agape. And, and Lewis actually gets into this a little bit in The Four Loves when he talks about how, how uh, friendship can kind of go bad. And, he, and, he's, and he, what, he, what he means by that is that, he, he, well, he gives, he gives an example. He starts off with a fact, and this is an interesting observation of his, as all of his observations are. <laughs> One of the many. But here, but here he says, uh, you know, people in authority are often suspicious of friendship because it's not directly under the control of the authority figure. And who knows what's going on in that friendship that might be subversive or might run counter to the larger needs of the community. Perhaps there's a a cabal, you know, some kind of plot being hatched. And, and, I, and I know, you know, in, um, for example, youth groups, church youth groups, you know, sometimes youth leaders look at friendships as a problem, you know, because there are the inside people and the outside people. But isn't the whole group supposed to be one? Aren't we all in this together? And, and I kind of remember being a part of a youth group, a church youth group, that sometimes you create this, you know, this rich bond, and all of a sudden some strange outsider comes in and throws off that connection. And in a weird way, you, you don't want them to be a part of it because of rather than having a larger, you know, readiness to receive and broad, you know, broaden out what you have together, you become very protective of, of what you did have. Anyway, I just threw that in. No, no, that's exactly where Lewis is going. Yeah. Lewis is, is concerned with this, this, you know, in a fallen world, everything can go bad. And there are certain ways that things can go bad. And what he's concerned with is how friendship can go bad. And what you end up with is this inside-outside thing. Now, on one hand, uh, 
you can't have an inside if there isn't an outside. I mean, it's, it's, it's just the nature of friendship that there are going to be yeah. people who are, you know, in the know, and then there are people who are not. But one of the well, things he's concerned about is pride. Well, the, the, the thing that I, the response I would make here is that we are finite creatures. Um, God is the only one who's really infinite and transcendent. And what that means is we don't have unlimited resources of time, attention, energy, um, emotional resources. We can't be multiple places at once, all of those kinds of things. And if we don't invest our lives in a finite group of people, if we try to extend it to everyone, we develop no relations with anyone. We're not God. We can't do that. Yeah. Um, you know, th my background uh, today, you didn't ask me where I am. This is Scalic. <laughs> I was thinking of that. <laughs> uh, Scalic Michael is a, uh, the, the ancient Irish monks, they had two kinds of monasteries. And this one is what was called the Skate Monastery. And it's a, basically a group of people who went out and built these beehive huts and lived out on a barren rock in the water. And one of the things that was characteristic of Celtic Christianity generally, and the kind of thing that they really emphasized within a community like Scalic Michael, is the idea of what they called anamkara, or spiritual friendships. Uh, this is the idea of finding someone, usually just one person, who will care for your soul as much as you do. Now that's a true friend. Yeah. Yeah, and they're operating, this, this, I would argue, takes Aristotle to a higher level. Okay. Yeah. That, that's what they were looking for, and they knew that you couldn't do this with many people. You really were lucky in a lot of ways if you found one. And this is just simply the reality of finitude. It's the reality of being in a fallen world. It's the reality of the fact that we can't invest everything in everybody we're not God. and there, there may be a dimension even of of not just fallenness to that but uh creatureliness you know right. if, if, if there is that there is that sense but it doesn't mean that um that by limiting uh one's connectedness and and fellowship to a certain depth diminishes one's relationship to the larger whole i think that's where the where the fall impacts things i mean for example i mean aquinas has some very interesting things to say he, he relates it to the political because he thinks that the social dimension is is right at the heart similar to to, to aristotle at this point but he talks about sort of on one hand and, and what differentiates sort of the selfish from the virtuous in 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 terms of um you know in terms of relating to true fellowship and he talks about the selfish is basically those who prefer lower goods for themselves. And so they're the ones who go after lower goods because lower goods are such that they really can, can be achieved and, 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 and gratify you for yourself. It's like the guy who, you know, instead of aiming for genuine uh, solidarity and good justice for himself, likes the 70 inch TV, you know, it's the lower good. It satisfies him <laughs> and, and that's good. You know, and so he pursues that. Well, the virtuous are those who prefer goods for themselves too, but higher goods. 
And those kind of higher goods are such like truth, which doesn't limit itself just to you, you know? So even though you get the rich benefit of it, it is something that actually applies and contributes to, to everyone around you. So when you pursue truth and you are reoriented toward that truth, it's not just something that, um, falls on you like the 70 inch television. <laughs> Maybe you can have a few friends over, but truth spreads itself out wider. Goodness, any transcendental, any perfection would, would be that way. But then he matches it socially with the question of um, different ways of loving in relationship to the city, the polis. And of course, the city of God is the ultimate. But he says, the tyrant can love the city, but he loves it to possess it. That's the tyrant. He wants to possess it, the power to dominate. It's not he loves the city, but he loves the city for his own good. Whereas the, the virtuous seek to preserve it, not necessarily in anything that is, is that stifles or sin or something that stifles genuine community, but in terms of what is in it as a gift of God that actually preserves the good of creation and allows it to flourish and fulfill its true end, and for humans, that's ultimately the beatific vision. So very contrasting pictures and virtues going on here. And so when you get that down to the relationship of Christians to other Christians, you bring those kind of dynamics into it. I mean, there are lower goods, there are higher goods. I think the evangelical church likes to go after the lower goods, you know? What is it that satisfies my my emotional self and 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 centralizes my you know yoga vision versus what are those things about truth beauty goodness that the church um has oriented itself towards that we all are actually being conformed to the image of god in christ i mean a very different set of spiritual resources and and visions that shape alternative i think friendship pictures I'd like to go back a little bit, though, to this distinction between the creaturely and the fallen, because yeah. it's, you know, this is the finitude thing. So, yeah. um, but one is almost the occasion for the other. What I mean by that is, is that, you know, we can only have so many friends, which means there's going to be some people mm -hmm. who maybe wish to be our friends, but can't be because they've, the slots are all occupied. You know, like, you know, how many, how many close friends can you actually have? Yeah. So, uh, if your 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 slots are full, somebody's on the outside might be envious of yeah. the of the place that someone on the inside is is in, and resent that person. So the finitude becomes the occasion for the fallen, yeah. and I think that um, you know there's a lack of realism on this. Uh, I you know I I think that on the one hand. We just need to accept certain things as being the case in a, in our created order. Finitude is just a fact. <laughs> you know, you can only have so many friends. You can only be in so many places at once. And 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 I think that some of the things that go on in the church, even but in our society at large, are, are kind of smoke and mirrors attempts to sort of pretend like we can get around these realities. You know. What's that? There's, you know, how many? There, there's a what's it? It's called the Dunbar number, like 120, 150, or is is basically the largest a group can grow with unless there's some kind of larger superstructure 
that makes it possible to grow beyond that. I, I, you know, it's, the idea is, is that, uh, you know, your typical church, for example, um, it's, it will grow, uh, to the point at which it has 120, 150 people. And then there's, uh, an, if you have a desire to grow it beyond that, they have something called breaking the 200 barrier. So this suddenly, this feature of creation, the fact that you can only so, know so many people and you can only be in a community of, that's so large before you start to become abstract and strange to you and impersonal is now a problem. Mm. You know, and what we want to do is we want to break out of that. This, 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 rather than say, you know, maybe God wants it to be this way and uh, maybe God has placed us in small communities where everybody can be known and everybody can know so that they can know and be known. <laughs> well, it, 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 this, is, this is one of the reasons why I think if you look overseas at where Christianity is growing, it is growing basically around house churches. Yeah. You know, it's because there, there are a lot of reasons for this, but you've got, they all work on the basis of existing relationship networks. And because it's small, reproduces easily. You know, you right. can teach other people to do it. You don't need the elaborate systems that we have here for founding churches. So you get these house church, basically like a house church movement. Some of them will grow, some of them won't, but it doesn't matter because they keep multiplying. Yeah, yeah. Because of the natural relationships. And and I think what you, you have here, something I think Aquinas emphasized, he's just drawing off a of scripture here, is that, that because all creatures um, manifest the distinct perfection of God, and all human creatures manifest it distinctly, in the way that they are called to manifest a distinct perfection of God. Therefore, it's not one person who manifests, other than Christ, all of the perfections of God. And so you don't have to have friendship with just this person in order to actually be in proper communion and, and friendship with, with God and creation. And so we, we don't need to turn into an idol one or two or three particular Christians or people in order to actually benefit from the gift of friendship in, in the fullest sense. And I, I mean, I think that's, that's the thing. The, 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 the finitude is also an aspect of the plenitude. So the finitude is really showing that not one particular creature manifests the fullness of God. <laughs> and so friendship you you bring up something though it's I think worth re reflecting on and I don't I don't know if Lewis gets into it so much but I've I've witnessed it yeah and that is a kind of jealousy that can mm -hmm. get develop within friendships where one particular where one person in a friendship can become a jealous sort of person and not want the other person to have any other friends or <laughs> have you have you ever witnessed this yes <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's weird. So, so here we have finitude, um, which is you know wrapped up with our creatureliness, or is, is an you know is, is sort of fundamental to our creatureliness, and it's a gift and it's a good gift, but is is because of our fallenness uh, the occasion for envy if we see somebody in a relationship that we wish we were in, or jealousy, yeah, yeah. when we have, when we want to possess our friend yeah. to a degree that 
we shouldn't attempt to possess him. And that, that you're moving here into the other half of the equation. You know, we talked about um, creatureliness and the fall. You've been focused on creatureliness, but where you've now shifted to is the mm -hmm. issue of the fall. And it works yeah. two ways. One of them is the kind of jealousy you're talking about, but the other part of it is you actually have to be careful who you have friendships with because not everyone is trustworthy. And if you are going to be utterly transparent to people, there are going to be people who are going to use and abuse you horribly. Yeah, I see, you see that an awful lot. Yeah, you yeah. see that an awful lot, particularly with sort of naive and maybe recent converts or young Christians um, mm -hmm. who, in their enthusiasm uh, for you know, godliness and love, uh, make themselves very vulnerable in a bad, in a bad sense. It's, right. it's one thing to be vulnerable like Jesus was, but Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. He knew yeah, what yeah. was coming. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I mean, I don't, want to, I don't want to distract too much from the direction you wanted to go, but it's worth noting that we have shifted now into the issue of the fall, and it works in a lot of different ways. Yeah. The fall affects us, potentially, in this issue of jealousy, but it also is one of the reasons why we have to be careful about who our friends are. And if you, you can't read Proverbs without understanding that. And, and it brings competitiveness. I think that's another thing that a lot of people don't, I mean, Christians don't really need to work in that dimension. When you understand the full gift character of the whole, you know, think of the church, you know, can the hand say to the foot, it doesn't need it, right? But there is this sense in which competitiveness um, which which has its own goods. I mean, there's a good side to com competition, you know, the perfecting of oneself to be better, you know, all the virtues tied to it. But when it is distorted and its loves are misguided, it, it aims towards um, it basically dominance in a very unhealthy kind of way that, that um, I have to be the center, I have to be the one who everyone recognizes, worships, and sees, and you, you, you can't actually... Um, celebrate in the goodness of another's giftedness and and gift and i think the church runs into these kind of temptations that that when rather than moving and running with and benefiting from the full gift characters what you know chris does or what glenn does and benefiting it so you know what they do actually enhances what i do it becomes something that becomes a competition to and therefore something that conflicts with you know and therefore you what you brought into the kingdom is a set of conflicts rather than mutual um, um, uh, mutually enhanced gifts supplying yeah. gifts to what you do yeah you, you really bring up something very I think painful and true yeah. Tom um, <laughs> you can lose friends in two ways through hardship and through good fortune yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things that I've seen over the years is I've lost, I've probably lost as many friends, if not more, when good things have happened to me. Yeah, yeah. And um, the first thing that some people will say if something good happens to you is, that never happened to me. <laughs> In other words, they're, they're doing what you just said. They're comparing. Sure, yeah. Now, now when you see someone who is, in, is facing hardship and your heart goes out to them, 
there's a, now this is again where fallenness comes in. There's a part of you that also is sort of like delighting in the fact that you were in a position to be a benefactor. Yeah. Yeah. I've got yeah. more than that person. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that the, I think that the truest friends are the ones who can actually celebrate your successes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, of course, what happens if you're successful, you, you can find people who are false friends who want to be your friend because they are looking for some osmosis or they're looking for to ride your coattails. Sure. So there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, of, of uh, I guess, uh, danger, uh, peril in success because you can end up losing some friends who maybe they weren't really your friends or maybe they weren't good mm -hmm. friends like you thought they were. And, and you can replace them with truly false friends. <laughs> Does that make sense? Truly false friends? <laughs> well, it's, well, it's like, you know, Damocles sword, I think, can fall even on the Christian in that sense. And, and, and then it becomes a suspicion of everyone. So, you know, the, the balancing act is, is not getting caught up in those extremes and, and keeping that center um, of, 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 you know, not falling off the rails for everyone who, who, who is in this situation where they're just simply, you know, using you. Where, you know, not, I mean, even if they, they, their intent wasn't in a perverse sense, it was need love, you know, as Lewis said. Um, and, and so, and, and there are many ways in which God has brought us into the world to, to be agents of, of, of attending to that with others. I mean, part of the body of Christ makes no sense if it's every man for themselves. I mean, what's the point of that? Um, but on the other hand, it's not the opposite extreme that, that no one has any gifts and, and distinct life and calling, you know? And so it, it's this way in which the, fl the flourishing of the whole, you know, the common good, in, even in the church in some sense, Christianly defined, um, is is the pursuit of those higher goods by the people of God, which ends up benefiting the, the, the whole body of Christ and then the world in it, rather than the church pursuing the lower goods, which benefit the self. Sorry to draw on Aquinas again, but he's drawing oh, on, great. on scripture. So. <laughs> well, and and that, that's an important point because... Uh, you can make an argument, I think, that finitude is a gift of God that leads to friendship. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, in, in a sense, we're back to almost a utilitarian idea here, and I don't mean to go all the way that far. But the fact <laughs> of the matter is that none of us is complete in, a, in and of ourselves. None of us is everything we need. None of us is everything we ought to be. And we need each other because we're finite. We need each other to cover the gaps in our armor, as it were. You know, we, we need each other's help. We need, without that, we cannot exist, we cannot function, we cannot be what we're meant to be. Spe speaking to finitude, Glenn, I have a friend who's a, a, a particles physicist uh, at UConn. He teaches at UConn. And we were talking one day about space-time space continuum. And he, he said to me, and of course, when you talk about space-time, you're talking about finitude. So uh, he said, the great thing about, the, the thing to note about space-time is that uh, we need time so that everything doesn't happen at once. 
and we need space so that it so that everything doesn't happen to you. <laughs> yeah. so, so it's, it's a blessing to live in space time. <laughs> so w without space time, everything would happen to you all at once, <laughs> <laughs> which is a pretty scary thought. <laughs> but actually, it sort of looks like what's happening right now in the news. But I'm <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, speaking speaking to that. You know, one of the reasons I thought about friendship as a theme for the show is I think citizenship is a kind of friendship. Yeah. You know, we, we share the polis. We share the city with, with others who are very different from us in many ways. Um, but nevertheless, there's a common good that we enjoy because of its life. And right now, uh, there's a lot of things going on that I think are indicative of, of a very unhealthy civic life. Yeah. No matter what you think about what's going on in terms of whether certain things are justified or not, I think we can all agree, everyone can agree, that we've got a very unhealthy city right now. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, what, what, what we need is a, a vision of the common good to make us yeah. friends again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, mm -hmm. Anything you guys want to add as we, as we wrap it up? Uh, Tom, you got something you want to say? No, I think that would be a whole show in itself, um, and I know a lot of people probably wanting to, you know, how we how we think about that. But I think the roots are right here. Is that um, I'm not going to move into those questions by by falling into the entrapment of political polarities based on you know what I see as kind of distorted visions of the good. Um, I think a full vision of the good is the only answer. That's what's been missing for a long time. Um, anyone who has has been proclaiming the gospel faithfully has been saying that for a long time, <laughs> and not just you know. I mean, there's some other other figures that have as well. And uh, we have the riches, we have the resources. Uh, I'm not anxious because I know you know I, I know where my center is and I know where the answer is. Um, but on the other hand, there are troubling things, and I think we have the riches to to address it. But I do think it's going to take. Uh, it's not going to be a short address it's going to be a long one right right glenny anything you want to add yeah well i the, the first thought that comes to mind is our citizenship is in heaven um but along with that we're supposed to seek the good of the city and i think that um trying to balance out that you have so for example um this is something i've been thinking about quite a bit lately um, the issue of racism. I would argue, unlike a lot of my conservative friends, and I'm generally in the conservative camp, that racism is, in fact, an embedded problem in our society. It's much better than it was 50 years ago, but there is still, nonetheless, when you look at disparities of uh, treatment of minorities, particularly blacks, um, it's hard to argue that racism isn't at work in some sense. But I don't define racism exactly the way other people do, and I certainly don't find the answer where they do. Um, I would argue that the fundamental problem is cultural, it's not racial. Um, but because we've been trained to think of it in terms of race, we racialize a problem that is actually a cultural problem, rooted in worldview and a whole host of other things. I mean, that, that, that in itself is a much, much longer discussion. But we have to figure out, it seems to me, 
You know, and I think this is where you were going. We have to figure out how we speak truth in love, in the culture, taking into account the fallenness, not just of individuals, but of culture and institutions and things like that. How do we do this in order to create a vision of the common good based on truth, which is the only way we can really do it? How do we actually do that in the world that we're in? And that's actually a thing I've been really wrestling with a lot lately. So, yeah. And I think one of the problems we face is that no one outside of very, you know, sort of limited uh, circles even wants to talk about something like the common good. You know, uh, you have your good, I've got my good, and we're all supposed to pursue our separate goods. Well, well and I, actually, to take that a step further, they view the common good as a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. If one person gets goods, they have to get them from depriving it from someone else. So if you want the oppressed to get goods, you have to deprive the, the oppressors of those goods. So it, it's a situation of constant war. And I think this is why our early episodes are very important, because they show the way in which Kantian man changed the whole notion of creation, the creature and the common good, and what we're after in aims. And I, I would say all the, everyone fighting today and everyone uh, dominating today are working from a center that is fundamentally not Christian. And we, we, we've, we've, we've lost the resources to deal with it. And so we're, we're, we're looking for resources elsewhere, but, uh, Anyway, <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, as, as, as is always the case, we've got a lot we can continue to talk yeah. about, but we're yeah. out of time. Speaking of finitude. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks a lot, uh, guys, and th that was a fun discussion. Great and we discussion. hope that you enjoyed this conversation. We raised questions we couldn't get to, but that's normal. And uh, we appreciate you. We think of you as friends, even though we don't know uh, the vast, vast majority of you, the audience is too large for us to know. Uh, we're glad that we can we have this this vehicle with which we can connect with not only each other but with you. And thank you for connecting with us. We we don't take you for granted at all. We are very grateful to have this relationship that we have with each other and with you. And thanks for listening to the Theology Podcast. Bye bye. Bye bye. bye, -bye.